Hello, all you wonderful listeners. Today on Rise Up with Julie Baumgartner, our guest is an educated professional who will be speaking about everything that is happening in India. He was born in India and spent his early life there before reuniting with family already living in the United States. He holds a Bachelor of Science degree in Public Administration and Business from the University of Texas in Dallas. He had a career with Tom Thumb for 20 years, working his way up from packing clerk to store director, and he was the first Indian and one of the youngest store directors at the time. He was trained in all aspects of retail business, gaining knowledge in distribution, finance, human resources, and information technology. In 1999, when changes were made in the grocery industry and Safeway bought out Tom Thumb, that buyout provided him with finances from the share of stock in the buyout to invest in his own businesses. He purchased one grocery store and gas station, and as a business owner, sales increased from 300000 per year to over $3 million per year. He then developed a 7,000-square-foot retail strip center, which he sold, and started a software outsourcing company doing business in the United States, United Kingdom, and Australia. He then purchased land, a building, and a business, remodeled it, sales increased, and he sold that. As a business owner, he repeated that model several times. In addition to his entrepreneurial pursuits and successes, the legacy his parents were building in their humanitarian and missionary work in India called him into involvement. He became president of the faith-based organization, and today, Jameson Titus shares with the Rise Up listeners about everything that is happening in India. Welcome today, Jameson. Thank you, Julie. It's an honor to be here with you, and uh, look forward to catching up. Well, let's just start off with you giving us a bit of history about India and also about the culture there. Okay. Many of you may not know that, but India is a very diverse culture. It's about 1.4 billion people, and the landmass is about one-third the size of America. And there's about four times the population of the people that live in America. So there are quite a few people there. Many diversity of languages, not dialects. I'm talking real languages. And so when you're going from state to state, it's like being in Europe where you're going from country to country and it's a different billboard, different signboard, uh, different language, different script. The foods are different. The clothes are different. The culture is different from state to state, region to region. So India is a very diverse nation and I was born there and raised there and then I was able to be in America about when I was about eight years old. And uh, so love the country of India, beautiful place. My dad used to say, people usually just talk about the slums of Calcutta, but it's a beautiful country, beautiful place, beautiful people. And I love the country. Tell us geographically where India is located. India is directly below China and it borders Nepal, China, and to the west of us is Pakistan. And so Pakistan's the west of us, the north of us is China and Nepal, and then we have 
it's sort of like Texas, the shape of it. And on one side, we have the Bay of Bengal, and then we have the Indian Ocean. And it sort of looks like Texas as a shape, but size-wise, not as big as America at all. And up in the north, we have the snow and ice and different climate seasons, very similar to here. And as you get to the middle area where we're located, it is much more dry. We don't have any snow, no ice, but we do have monsoon or rains. And then the further south you go, it becomes very tropical, humid, and very hot. So different parts of India has different sceneries, different elevations, different climates. I know that India is in the news right now because of everything that is happening with the COVID-19 virus. And you have people there. Mm -hmm. And I also know your, your brother just passed and Mm -hmm. you have my condolences and thank you and prayers over that. I'm so sorry. So sorry, but you are very qualified to discuss what is happening there Give us a yeah. brief overview. Okay. The, the nation, initially when the COVID came out, the government as a whole shut the country down and prevented people from uh, migrating out. And we actually had a true lockdown. And the lockdown resulted in limiting the spread initially. And it was a very hard lockdown. You couldn't leave out of your home. There was only a few hours during the day that you could go out to do any kind of shopping. There was restrictions or go to the hospital to get medication and things. And then slowly as this virus progressed, the rules were sort of relaxed a little and more. And then recently there was some elections, about five or six states had elections. And there was a lot of uh, religious festivals that people usually tend to have thousands and millions of people congregating. And during that season, a lot of the precautions were not being followed as the government should, as far as the government said to the people. And uh, logistically couldn't be followed. And a lot of the supplies and things weren't there initially. So I think all of that resulted to what we're seeing today of a spike and a lot more people being infected, a lot more people are dying. And there's a a huge lack of medical care or medical supplies. You know, we have some great doctors in India. We have great hospitals, but the lack of planning and imagining that this disease could create this much disaster within our country. So a lot of the supplies were limited and a lot of supplies could not get from point A to point B in a timely fashion. So a lot of the prices went up, the demand went up, the supplies decreased. So there was a lot of problems for an average person to acquire medicine to treat. And the hospital systems are a little different from America. When you go in a hospital here, you would see the doctor and they would give you all the medications and feed you their cafeteria meals and things like that. But in India, it's a little different. 
when you go to the hospital, you usually bring your medication with you, your supplies with you, and your family members come and cook your meals for you. And so that is what normally happens in a typical hospital. So when you're going to the hospital, you bring your, if it's tubes, injection, medication, tablets, usually the doctor will give you a list of, these are all the things you need before you come and you go source it, find it, bring it with the patient. And that's normally the way it's done. Do, does the patient have to pay for that? The or patient, is healthcare patient, free? No, the patient has to pay for that. And even in most cases, the doctor requires money up front normally. So if the surgery is going to cost so much, you basically pay for it, then you're admitted to have this, the surgery on a normal average. There are government hospitals in major cities and major areas that people have to travel to get there to receive the care which is free by the government, but a normal person that is far away from one of these centers has no choice. They have to go where they can logistically. And well, that, that was going to be a question is how accessible and available are hospitals? There are clinics and hospitals throughout the region and there's private practices, private hospitals. In addition, the government has government clinics throughout different areas and villages but they're usually limited with resources, limited with supplies, but the people can go there and get free medicine and free care, depending on their, we would say cast, depending on the cast that they're in. And we would have like a card that would say, I'm from X cast, this allows me this much privileges. But if you're not around that area or in, in a local place, you're basically out of luck. We don't have an insurance card like you would have in America, you show the insurance card and it says your group policy and it's effective and all your coverage is done. I thought the caste system was eliminated. It has never been eliminated, in my opinion. It is always in our culture. Over the years, it has diminished, but in the last few years, it also has come back up. It is still in our culture. It is in the, in the marketplace. It's, it's in the society. And uh, thousands of years of history is hard to change on that system. How do you get out of that? You really don't get out of it, but through education, through the knowledge of getting a degree, getting a good English education, working your way up out of your social um, standing to move into the next and through economics. So there is, there is a possibility. And in India, a few years ago, there was a huge discussion about the new emerging middle class within India. And that class came through because a lot of multinational companies were invested there and there was technology, software development, things like that. So people were working together that were from different castes, different religion, different sex were working together. And so that collaboration of working together sort of broke down a lot of the barriers over the years of working with someone from a different religious background. And so that trend is happening in major cities, but in the local villages and areas that are not as, they're more secluded, the old things still continue. 
You mentioned the religious festival, the pilgrimage there. What was that about? And, you know, I heard it was a super spreader. Yeah. So there's different temples, different holy places that devotees of a certain temple or area would go to, sometimes annual, sometimes quarterly, that they make a pilgrimage to. And in our area, there's one south of us where the devotees have to travel. They have to do like penance on their way. They don't wear shoes. They have something they put on their head. There's many different things that they do to bring an offering to their temple. And it's a journey of doing without certain things. They go in groups. They travel once they get to the temple they make their prayers they make their gift and then they come back home but normally they do it in groups as a family as a a group of men that will get together and and do this trek from a long part of india on a train buses planes again in a really confined areas and traveling and so there's there's different one different locations throughout india that have different temples And there's different devotees that will go to certain temples only throughout their life. And there's certain that will travel to different ones. And it is a pilgrimage that they do. And that has affected this recent spike in COVID because of so many people being in trains. And there was so many extra trains ordered because they had to be uh, moving so many people from one location to the other location to attend these festivals. Was that a financial burden on this pilgrimage where perhaps now they can't make another trip by train or however to get to a hospital? Right now, we're in lockdown. Okay. The state that I'm in right now, there are very few trains running. The At noon, at lunchtime, Everything is shut down till the next morning at 6 a.m. So from 6 a.m. to 12, we were able to leave the house to go to buy vegetables or buy rice, buy medicine, and you have to come back before noon. No shops, no businesses, transportation, everything halts. And and majority of all the states of India are in lockdown in some form. And at the end of this month, We are supposed to be notified by the government if that lockdown has been adjusted in time or if it's going to be extended for another so many days, two weeks, 30 days. It's up to the local chief, you would say the governor of each state to set that limitation. But that has prevented a lot of people who go to work as a day laborer, who work in the farms or they work on the construction sites they cannot go earn a living. So this lockdown has not affected just the people as far as a virus and contagious, but it's also affected their livelihood that they cannot earn an income. And so if you can't earn an income for the day, your family does not eat. So presently, there are a lot of families that are suffering with a lack of food. Normally, an average person would work in the morning in the evening when they're finished with their job, the, the boss would pay them in cash that day. And on the way home, 
the individual would then buy a bag of rice, some vegetables, maybe an egg, some chicken, and bring it home for the family to have a meal. Next morning, he goes to work, earns the income, gets paid that day. They eat daily. Their, their wages take care of their needs usually daily. That's a lot of the population in India has that. With the lockdown, they have not been able to go out and earn income. Now, we also have professional people who work behind a computer. Some of those have been blessed because they have been able to work remotely if they have internet, if they have power. So in India, it's, it's saying we may have a computer, but we may not have the power to have it to work, or there may not be an internet connection to do it. And why is that? Because of the demand and the infrastructure within India to meet the demand of 1.4 billion people. So the, there's what we call burnouts or rolling blackouts. So in the summertime, we have it. Usually three times a day in our home, the power goes out. Once in the morning, once after lunch, and once in the evening. So we're prepared. You know, We have either a generator or we have flashlights or candles, things that we would use, kerosene lamps that would tie us over for those power cuts on a daily basis. I know that India is the second most populous country mm-hmm. in the world and seventh largest country by land area. And so that also makes it a very location in demand for Facebook and Google and everyone to have a market there. And there's some recent controversy over social media and free speech there. Yes. Do you know, do you know what I'm referring to? Yes, there, it started a few years ago when there was a government change and there was, of course, there was two main parties in India for many years and this one particular party came into power and many of you know, Prime Minister Modi, we pray for him and we pray for all the leaders of our country and their policy and things, he was very good on social media. There was actually a, a comparison of former President Trump and him as far as how many followers did each have on Twitter. And uh, there was a rivalry between who could get more. And so there's, there was uh, social media being used. A lot of uh, different platforms were being used. But when there was anyone who would raise a concern of the government, there was some backlash of the government squashing it not allowing the free speech, even though we have a great independence, we have a great constitution, probably the best in the world, giving free speech, freedom of religion, freedom of things that we could assemble, all of those things. But in reality, some of those things weren't being honored. And so there was a debate even recently as to the government petitioning the social media platforms to remove posts. Mm-hmm. And that if they refuse to remove the post, they may not be allowed in our country. Well, 1.4 billion people, it's a great market to be in. Well, so far, I believe Google, Facebook, Telegram, LinkedIn have all agreed to that policy. But mm-hmm. Twitter is standing up to them saying it is intimidation tactics. Mm-hmm. And 
I think the WhatsApp is involved in there as well. But the speak about the intimidation because there's also there's persecution and there's there's violence and there's there's intimidation of all sorts happening. I think we were made aware of it on college campuses at first when students will rally behind an individual who was being mistreated and they would have what we'd say strikes or protests with cards, get people, students gathering. All of a sudden, some of the police would be instructed to arrest these students for insurrection. And, you know, before a few years ago, I've never heard the word insurrection being used uh, commonly. I've and heard it so, a lot lately here. Yes. <laughs> that migrated from there to here, in my opinion, when, when India started using that particular term, that's when it started to be used in America. And so there was a lot of young people being arrested, news reporters, people that would normally have freedom of speech, or we would, as in, in the West would say freedom of speech, but many were being arrested for insurrection acts. And that gave the leadership and the people more uh, clout to be able to do what they were doing, intimidating, squelching any of the protests, things like that. Many of you may have heard of all the farmers recently being in Delhi and the strikes and all the tractors being on the highways. And so there is a lot of political unrest in our country. Uh, right now in relation to so many varieties of things from, like you said, from freedom of speech to the caste system, to economics, to now to the virus. So India is, is facing a lot of rough times, just like many nations are today. At present today, there have been 27.6 million cases of COVID-19 in India and 319,000 deaths. So how is everyone dealing with that? I know your brother's funeral had to be private because of regulations there. Yeah, there is, there is uh, such a fear. And because, because of the surge or spike, my brother passed away on Sunday uh, morning, India time, early morning on Saturday night, Sunday morning. And the funeral was done on Monday morning at eight. There was this, a 24 hour window given to either cremate the body or bury the body. Even some of the morgues that we called would not even accept the body from the hospital because it was COVID related. So the ceremony or the, the service had to be done with very limited people. Me and my sister who are here would have traveled to be there for the family. We couldn't travel because it had to be done in 24 hours. It takes us, you know, 27 hours in flight to get there. So it wouldn't be logistically possible. There were the service, the pastor had to have a full PPP suit, the hat, 
the gloves, the mask, the is like hazmat suit doing the service. Is no there hugging, no, no embracing the family, no compassionate uh, touch. It was very tough for my brother's wife and the children. They all have to be distanced as families. And in a time of crisis, families come together, they support one another, they hug one another, encourage one another. That couldn't happen. And Do this, these stringent regulations cause people, you believe, to actually hide their condition? Definitely. I remember maybe decades ago when the AIDS virus was very prominent back in the 80s and 90s. And I remember people telling me that in India, no one would say they had AIDS. They would say they had TB, tuberculosis, which has some of the same effects or symptoms. But there was such a, a stigma associated with it that they wouldn't say what it was. Same thing with this, with the corona. I think there are people that are put in positions of when they're the only person in the family earning a wage to feed the family, knowingly, if they're not feeling well, they will continue to work because there's no other chance for their family to eat. So if they continue to work in that condition, knowing what little we know about this virus, it will spread. So they knowingly, some may not even say they're not feeling well until the last minute when it's too late. On wealth distribution there, economic growth has slowed down significantly. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts about that? I think uh, we as a country are facing a lot of economic difficulties because of this lockdown. Not only that, but there's also been some other decisions and companies and things and policies made that also affected our economic situation as a country. The opportunity to recover, I think, will be a lot longer term than what we're imagining because of the damage that it's done at the lowest level of economy. You know, the local family has been such financial crisis to recover would take a long time, in my opinion. Prior to the pandemic, how does the economic status compare from, let's say, 2019 to today? I think the economy was on a, on a, a good incline. There was some external forces that caused our nation not to have the double-digit growth rate as it had back a decade ago, mm -hmm. it was in the single digit growth rate. But then in the West, some people would say they'd be happy with the single digit growth rate for their country. So it's all relative to where you live and where you are. But the, but the growth rate has continued to decline over the years from what it was a decade or so ago. It's, it is stated that India is only second to Russia in inequality. Mm. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about that. That would be in probably in every arena of our society from uh, males and females 
and the disparity between the two to the caste system within the untouchables and the dialects and the middle class and the high caste, the disparity within the marketplace. It, it's in every arena and it's hard to imagine being in the West to the disparities that you see in one view of your eyes, you can see the wealth, you can see the dire poverty in the same view that you're looking in say one street. I think here in the West, there'll be areas people would say is a rich area or a poor area, but in India, you would probably see that in a combination of that in every area. I know you do significant humanitarian aid in India mm -hmm. and you have several projects going on. Can you talk about your children's home? Yes, there are children that may not have one parent or some may have not have both parents. My mother years ago uh, was a school teacher and she moved back to India with my father. And while my dad was teaching in a Christian college, my mom, being a school teacher, ended up taking these young children who happened to be working on the streets with their father and mother who were contract workers building roads. And she saw the children working and not being in school and learning. So she asked my father, could she take some of these children that are on the street with their parents? They were like, you would say, nomadic people that move from job to job. And she ended up bringing them to our campus. My dad made cement benches for her. And that led to her teaching outside under the mango tree with children that had never been to school, that didn't know how to read or write. And that started the genesis of the school. And the school led to getting children that had no uh, one to look after them. And that led to a children's home where boys and girls who will have an opportunity now to get an English education, they would get safety. They're not involved in the child labor, they're not involved in the sex trade, they're not involved in the drugs and all the things that happen with children there within our communities in our country. And so they have an opportunity to learn English in a school, provide a place to sleep, play three meals a day, help care. And so this was my mom's passion and that still continues today. And during this shutdown and lockdown, a lot of those children had to be gone back to where they came from as far as a legal guardian or a distant relative because of the shutdown. We cannot operate any institution right now as a ministry or as a children's home right now. How many children have passed through those doors? Oh, I would say two, 3,000 have come through. And usually each year they're with us from uh, the smallest we had is like three and a half or four years old, all the way to 18 years old. And so consistently they would be with us each year. And I think the most we've had at one given time was over 900 at one time in our school and home. And within so, the children's home, I think the most, it was 350 some children at the peak as far as most at one time. So you educate them, you feed them, and you provide a place to rest and sleep. Yes. 
And, you know, we believe in education. Our whole culture believes in education. And we believe that education is the answer to poverty. And that if we can educate a child, we can share our faith, we can share the love, and then we're able to change that next generation of young people that we have an influence on. And they will be the future leaders of India that will make a transformation within our nation. And that's what we do. What grades does this cover? We say lower kindergarten, which is LKG, all the way to 10th standard, which is our typical high school. Then we have 11th and 12th, what we would call in India, junior college, or we would say plus two. So when you finish your 11th and 12th, then you go to university. And in three years in university, you can get your bachelor's degree normally. And that is an accredited certificate? Yes. So we have, we're, we're approved by the government. We have two curriculums. We have the state curriculum and we have a national curriculum. So as a child, you would go into one or the other at the age, at the grade of six, you would go to one track or the other track. One may be considered a little bit harder than the other track. And depending on what you wanted to do as a child, if you wanted to become a doctor, engineer, you would go into this track. If you wanted to be a businessman or something, you may go on a different track. Talk to us about the hospital that you operate. The hospital back 27, 28 years ago was a vital need to our community. There was no medical care in our village area. At the main city, which is an hour away, there was hospitals and medical care available. But where we were regionally had very little. So my father started a small, started with a clinic. And then as the need grew, it became a full-fledged hospital. And then through the years, through the last three decades, the community and the government have come on board and they've started to provide clinics, government clinics, hospitals within our area. So we've now transferred it the other way. And now we're coming back from a full-fledged hospital back down to a clinic because the needs of the community are being met. Uh, do people go there and serve? Are they volunteers? Do doctors come from the United States and all yes. over? Yes, we've had doctors, we've had dentists, we've had nurses, we've had uh, regular people who want to come and just be there to serve the, the hospital and the humanitarian need. Right now, through the humanitarian side, through this COVID, we've been doing food relief. So we get rice dal, vegetables, eggs. We buy in bulk and then we repackage them in smaller packages. And with protection and following the guidelines, our, our local church planters will go to the community and help the people that need help. You also have a program that provides vocational education, especially to underprivileged women. Is that correct? Yes. And um, that gives them an opportunity to learn computers and you also help after that with job placement. Yes. Over the years, we've had young ladies who either weren't able to finish their education and come and they would serve on the, com- on the campus and be taught soft skills, typing, Excel, Word. 
Blue Java and different software applications. And over the years that has morphed into where now we offer all that to all the children that are in the school. So they don't leave our campus without having the computer skills. And we've done sewing centers. So we have different locations throughout India that would have uh, a location that we would have 10 sewing machines, five sewing machines. The ladies that would come in would be taught how to make blouses, dresses, and it would give them a livelihood. And these sewing machines would be the ones that would be foot pedal or would filter city. Being in a village, sometimes there is no power to turn these machines on. So it has the old trundle that you push with your feet. Mm. And we would gift them one once they finish their course that they would take back to their area and that would provide an income for that family. And they would be able to serve their needs in that community and, and add value as far as providing for their family with an income. And it's been a great opportunity for us as a mission, as a family to be able to sow into these young women who have a value now, who have a business to be able to provide for their home. Outside of the pandemic, what are the biggest needs in India? Education, infrastructure. There would be a lot of young people who lack that opportunity for an education. If we can provide an education for the young people, again, in an English medium to be able to compete worldwide, in the marketplace, that would be a, such a great, a miracle thing to change our nation, education. Of course, the medical care infrastructure is, is also needed in our country as a whole. What has changed between how you used to facilitate your missionary how you used to operate as opposed to how you do it now? What has changed? I think, I think there's a lot of things that have changed. I don't know we have enough time to discuss all the changes, but the, the old model of relying on foreign help has changed because the government has restricted funds coming into India and limited how and when. We, would, we now have a lot more self-support projects that we do that has changed from many years ago. Having our own farm, all cultivating our own vegetables, having our own cows, milking our own cows for the children to have milk and to provide the yogurt and things for the campus. Adding the vegetables to our meals for the children. Uh, a small printing press, which now creates an income. Right now it's locked down, but we would be able to do business cards, invoices for the local businesses around us. That would give us a profit. That profit would then cover all the print costs for the school and for the seminary. So we've done more things recently, just this year in February, we've completed our solar panel project, which generates energy that we sell to the government. That means we don't have to buy the energy cost as a mission, we were spending almost 3,000 US dollars per month between the school, the seminary, the farm, the campus, the, all the residential places we have. Almost 36,000 US dollars 
Now we're spending about 10% to 20% of that per month as of February of this year. So the way we did missions has changed dramatically. We have technology now. We have a media center, very similar to what you're doing on media here. We have cameras. We teach our seminary students how to be on a TV, how to be doing a recording, how to communicate in front of a camera. So there are are things that we're doing very different than we used to do. And so using technology has changed. Media has changed. The infrastructure of having self-support projects that would help underwrite the mission. So there's a lot of different things that are happening throughout India. What are you hoping for in the next five to 10 years? That more young people will come on and take the leadership, that we would be able to generate income within our own country to fund the mission. And we would get resources from our friends from abroad that would come with education, teaching, new ideas, new materials, infrastructure type things, but that we as a ministry would be able to be self-governed, self-populate, self-funding within our own country. If you were not able to preach Christ, would you still do what you do for the people there? Yes, we would. And that was the beginning of the ethos is, you know, not only do we train young men and women, not only do we plant churches, but we take care of our community. We take care of the children, the widows. And so it's a holistic ministry that it's not only dependent on one area. We want to take care of the whole person and the whole community. Tell everyone, all the listeners, where they can find you. What is your website? Where are you on social media? We're on website is www.christforindia.org. C-H-R-I-S-T-F-O-R-I-N-D-I-A.org. And on Facebook, we're on facebook.com slash Christ for India. And the same handle at Christ Green Down Twitter. And so we, we are on there. We haven't mastered all the social platforms yet, but we're doing our best to be on them. And I'm very grateful to you, Julie, for allowing us the opportunity to be on one of the platforms with you. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for your time. And thank you for being here today. Mm-hmm. I hope the message and the, the plea gets met with huge response and aid to India. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Rise Up with Julie Baumgartner. Thank you for listening today. Rise up and let's be the best that we can be and listen to this podcast that will both motivate and educate. Thank you 